before we move into James chapter 5 this morning, I want to read from Psalm 37, verses 7 through 9. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger, forsake wrath, do not fret, for it leads only to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. I want to begin this morning by asking a couple of pointed personal questions. How do you feel about waiting? Do you enjoy a nice long wait? What is your PQ? That's your patience quotient. Listen, no one would argue that waiting patiently is one of our strong suits as Americans. We're simply not patient. Author and pastor John Ortberg walks us through a couple of brief scenarios in which our response may expose something about our level of patience. I mean, think about this. Here's scenario number one. You're at a toll booth. The driver of the car in front of you is having an extended conversation with the toll booth operator. Think for a moment about how you would respond. A, you are happy that they are experiencing toll booth community. You think about joining them, maybe even forming a small group. B, you think of things that you'd like to say to the toll booth operator, like invite him to Sunday service or something. C, you attempt to drive your vehicle between the other person's car and the toll booth operator. Which one of those would you do? Scenario number two, you've been sitting in the waiting room of your doctor's office for an hour. How do you respond? A, you're grateful for the chance to catch up on the 1993 Reader's Digest. (laughs) B, you tell other patients that you have a very highly contagious and fatal disease in an attempt to empty the waiting room. Or if you have a little more flair for the dramatic is C, you force yourself to hyperventilate to get immediate attention. Now, these are fairly casual kinds of waitings that we have to put up with. However, there are other more serious and difficult kinds of waiting. There's the waiting of a single person to see if God has marriage in store for him or her. There's the waiting of a childless couple who desperately wants to start a family, but day after day and week after week, their prayer goes unanswered. There's the waiting of a spouse that's trapped in a hurting marriage that seems unable to change. There's the waiting of an elderly senior citizen in a nursing home, alone, seriously ill, just waiting to die. Every single one of us at some point in our lives will have to learn to wait. Lewis Meads puts it like this. He says, waiting is our destiny as creatures who cannot by themselves bring about what they hope for. We wait in the darkness for a flame we cannot light. We wait in fear for a happy ending that we cannot write. We wait for a not yet that feels like a not ever. 
Waiting is the hardest work of hope. Today, Pastor James, the Lord's brother, brings his own take to the matter of patience. In today's text, chapter 5, in verses 7 through 11, I believe his summation, similar to Smead's poignant statement, is simply this, that waiting on God is the hardest work of our faith. In other words, patience is the hardest work of our faith. And who would deny it? Follow with me as I read today's text in James chapter 5, beginning in verse 7. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that yourselves... Um, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the, the, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. We are now entering the final section of James's pastoral counsel to a displaced and oppressed and distressed con- congregation. They've experienced a flood of trouble from the oppressive world without. However, that trouble has also leaked its way in, manifesting itself, as we have seen over the past few weeks and months, in the forms of partiality, hypocrisy, sibling rivalry, selfish ambition, sinful pride, angry bickering, slander, and judgmentalism. In his parting words, James calls us to Christian solidarity as we live out these last days before the Lord's return because in truth, it's at hand. He is right at the door. That's what it says right here in verse 9. In other words, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we ought to be fixing our eyes squarely on the finish line of Christ's return through the power of patience. The practice of truthfulness, that's next time's sermon, verse 12. The effectiveness of prayer verses 13 to 18, and the spiritual care of loving correction with one another. That's just verses 19 to 20, and that concludes the book. You could say that patience is the word which governs the rest of James's letter. Whether it involves suffering, swearing, sickness, or sin, we need to endure it and address it with patience, James says. That is the key word, if you haven't figured it out yet, of today's text. And James uses it repeatedly, twice in verse 7, once in verse 8, once in verse 10, and in verse 11, he uses the closely related word endurance two more times. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11 is a clarion call to patience. Plain and simple. Be 
Patient is the first command of multiple commands in this text. It's the first word in the sentence of verse 7, which is the writer's way of emphasizing its importance. Therefore, be patient, he says. Now, what is patience? Well, simply, it means to endure, to be of a long spirit. What do I mean by that? Well, you've heard it translated in your Bible as long-suffering. It's an attitude and an action which can endure delay and bear suffering without giving in and caving into it. It means being slow to anger. It means not to lose heart, to suck it up and stick it out bravely, enduring ill treatment and faithfully trusting in God to bring about the desired end that he has. It's having a long fuse as opposed to having a short fuse. Even if a person is wrong and you're being antagonized by them, James says you need to have a long fuse. Galatians chapter 6, verse 22 says that patience is a fruit of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 4, Paul says it's a descriptive characteristic of love. Love is Patient, love is kind. Second Peter 3.9 says that it is an attribute and a character trait of God. God is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. It's not passive resignation, but active self-restraint. You understand the difference, right? Let me tell it to you this way. Biblical patience is not just waiting for time to pass. It's watching for God to work. That's the best way that I know how to describe it. We're just not waiting. We're waiting on God. Is that what you do? Because I know that too often it's not what I do. Look at verse 7. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. The true power of patience, James says, is found first in waiting on God and resolving to hope. Notice that James is back to addressing Christians again. After a harsh warning to the unbelieving, rich, and wealthy oppressors, His warmth returns as he refers to his people here as brethren. Be patient, therefore, brethren. Now, whenever we see the term therefore, we need to look back to see what the therefore is therefore, right? This typical translation, interpretation type of motif when you're studying your Bible. And that therefore colors the whole text, context that we're in. In short, James is saying, my brethren... Brothers and sisters in Christ, my fellow believers, in light of the oppression that you're under out there in the world, no matter how bad it gets, no matter how unfair it seems, no matter how unwarranted you think it is and untenable it may be to you, you need to wait on God and resolve to hope. How long, you might say? What's James say? He answers the question, 
till the coming of the Lord. Wow, that's a long time. It may be a long time. Could be, might not be. He could come today. Not enough amens in that one. Sorry, but wait for it. Amen. Wait. James says, wait until the coming of the Lord. Not very comforting, is it? But it's his command. It's God's command. Whatever the situation, whatever the trial, we must wait on God and resolve to hope because the fruit will come, guaranteed, guaranteed. He gives them a very practical illustration here, a farmer, which in an agricultural society helped them to get it. Verse seven, again, the second part of the verse. The farmer, behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. James is saying, listen up. Behold, now that I've got your attention, Hear this and see if it makes any sense to you. Waiting is what the farmer does. He plants and he waits. But he's not just stagnant while he's waiting, is he? There's work to be done while he waits. But psychologically, and especially in trying circumstances that he's experiencing, waiting is the hardest thing that he is called to do. And it's the hardest thing we're called to do. In Palestine, the farmer was dependent upon the early and late rains, which came in October, November for the early ones for germination of the seed, and then in April and May at the end. And they came annually. But without these rains, even the heavy rains that occurred in the wintertime would not prevent the failure of the crops. They needed those early and late rains. But he had no control, the farmer had no control over when those would come or if they would come. He had to wait patiently, trusting in God to bring them at the proper time. And as a result of God's faithfulness, he would exult in the, what's it say? Precious product. I think James uses that word precious for a reason. See, all the farmer could do was wait on God in expectancy. He resolved himself to hope. And by the way, every single Old Testament reference to the early and late rains that is used in the the Old Testament is in the context of affirming God's faithfulness. God is faithful. He will come through. In the same way, we must wait patiently as well. And to be frank, it's very frustrating, isn't it? Especially if you're one that likes to get things done. (coughs) Got to move. Got to get going. Got to check the box. Cannot sit down and wait. To wait on God's will, to wait on God's sovereignty, to wait on God's timing. But the fact is, this is something that God has always said to his people for reasons that you and I cannot fully understand, but for purposes that have been always for our best interest in God's greatest glory. Always. Listen to some biblical examples listed by one author. I'm going to try to 
go through these pretty fast, so track with me. God comes to Abraham when he's 75. 75 years old, he says, Abraham, you're going to become a father. Right. You're going to be the ancestor of a great nation. You're going to have so many kids, you're not going to know what to do with them. His wife's barren. But it's not going to happen today, God says. It's not going to happen tomorrow. You know how long it took before that promise came to fruition? 24 years. 24 years. But Sarah couldn't wait and Abraham couldn't wait, so they tried to do it on their own. That's, that really caused them problems that we're still experiencing today. 24 years. Think about being 75 years old, being told you're about to become a parent, and then having to wait 24 years. That's how long Abraham had to wait. God told Israel, his people, that they'd be a nation, able to leave the slavery of Egypt and be independent, but they had to wait. You know how long they waited? 400 years. God told Moses he would lead the people to the promised land, but they had to go through the wilderness and circle around a few years. You know how long they had to wait? 40 years. Then came the great promise of the Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer from God would come. God's people waited and they waited and they waited generation after generation, century after century. And the strangest of all, when the Messiah came, he was only recognized by a handful of people. Came incognito. He wasn't at all what they thought he was waiting, they were waiting for. In fact, he was only recognized by those who were waiting for him. Luke 2 tells us about two people that recognized the Messiah. One guy was named Simeon. Remember Simeon? In Luke 2, 25, it says that he was looking for, waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he saw the Lord's Messiah. But he finally saw it in his old age. And he took that little baby in his arms and he said, now I can die, God, you let me see him. He's here. Second person there in that context was Anna, a prophetess. She was of great age. Lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and as a widow to the age of 84. 84 years old. As a widow, year after year, decade after decade, this amazing woman, a prophetess of God, never left the temple but worshiped there with fasting and prayer day and night. And at that moment when Jesus came into that temple, she came in and began to praise God to speak about the child to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel, waiting. So the Messiah came. Jesus lived, he taught, and his disciples kept waiting for him to bring in the kingdom. They expected him to do it, but he didn't do it. He gets crucified instead, and he dies, and he rises from the dead. And as he's getting ready to ascend back into heaven, they ask again, are you going to restore the kingdom? Are waiting? Is it over? And Jesus had one more command. In Acts chapter 1, verse 4, he says, hey, don't leave Jerusalem but wait, just wait. And they waited in the upper room and guess what happened? The Holy Spirit came. But that still didn't mean the time of waiting was over. Paul writes in Romans 8, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly while we wait for our adoption as sons. The redemption of our body. For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience, Romans 8 says. 
and we wait, and we wait, and we wait. 43 times in the Old Testament alone, the people are commanded to wait on the Lord. This runs all the way through the Bible from beginning to end in the very last words, the last chapter of Revelation. John closes by saying this, the one who testifies to these things says, behold, I'm coming soon. It may not seem like it, but in light of eternity, it's soon. So hang on. And then John writes, amen, even so come Lord Jesus. And here we are waiting. We're waiting for you. But here's the obvious question. Why? Why does God make us wait? If he can do everything, anything, because he's omnipotent, why doesn't he bring us relief in the answers now? I certainly don't understand all of this, but I believe, at least in part, as one author does, to paraphrase Ben Patterson, what's going on is this. What God does in us while we wait is as important, if not more important, than what it is we're waiting for. Paul says, while we're waiting for God to set everything right, we suffer. But suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance produces character. And character produces hope. And God is producing these qualities in us while we wait. And what that means is that biblically, waiting is not just something we have to do until we get what we want. Waiting is part of the process of becoming what God wants us to become. Just like the farmer who waits for the precious produce of the soil, in the midst of our, our suffering and distress, we wait for the precious fruit of spiritual maturity that the Lord will bring. He will do it. Galatians 6, 9 says, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Friends, patience is a continual daily Choice. It's a moment-by-moment -moment decision to trust him, to obey him, to wait on him. It's a realization that we're not just waiting around, we're waiting on God. Resolving to hope, that's the true power of patience. Secondly, James says waiting, uh, the power of patience lies in waiting in strength and regaining our stability. Look at verse 8. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. So instead of losing heart, James says, strengthen your hearts. Shore up your soul is what it means. Find your strength in Christ and make your inner spiritual life firm. James says, instead of being storm-tossed and agitated about the circumstances in your life and oppression that you're surrounded with, stabilize yourself that's what the term actually means. It means to fix firmly to make something stable. One commentator paraphrased it like this. You must put iron into your hearts. Strengthen your hearts, James says. The repeated Old Testament exhortation to be strong and courageous would be a close parallel to this. After reading James's statement here in verse 9, the picture that immediately came into my mind was David's first response to something that happened in 1 Samuel chapter 30. 1 Samuel chapter 30, and um, I'll just give you the first six verses here. This is depicting David's victory over the Amalekites. 
says, it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had made a raid on the Negev and on Ziklag, and they had overthrown Ziklag and burned it with fire, okay? David and his warriors are away. The Amalekites came and made a raid on Ziklag where all the people were, and the guys weren't there to defend them. And they took captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great, without killing anyone, and carried them off and went their way. When David and his men came to the city, behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted their voices and wept until there was no strength left in them to weep. You get the picture? What would be your first reaction? I'm going after him. What's David's first reaction? Now, David's two wives had been taken captive. Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him. So here's David. They got to do something. His own wives were taken. They're in grief, and the people are getting mad at David. And they're about to stone him. For all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and daughters. But what did David do? He didn't listen to the people, did he? He didn't step out with what they were telling him to do, did he? What did he do? He strengthened himself in the Lord his God. He sought the Lord, he sought the priest, found out what God wanted to do. God says, go get him, and then they went and got him. And they had not lost a single person. He didn't step out in his flesh and in his impatience. He took the time to wait until God said, go. James doesn't say how we are to strengthen our hearts, but he does point to one primary point of focus. He says, strengthen your hearts. Why? For the coming of the Lord is near. For the second time in two verses, James turns the focus of those who are under duress and oppression to the soon return of Christ to get them through it. It is no small piece of encouragement, my friends. And it should be the motivating element of our own spiritual strength as well, shouldn't it? But I question that this morning. I ask you, seriously and honestly, is it? Is it? Do you expect Christ to come today? Oh, it's so silent in the room. I didn't expect any noise. I didn't expect any answers. We talked a little about this a few weeks ago, but do you really think that he is coming today? Honestly, we don't, do we? We don't. If we did, things would drastically change. I'd change, you'd change, our ministry would change, the whole approach to life would change, and certainly our approach to each other and to to the adversity that uh, we're experiencing would change. But you see this concept, the imminent return of Christ, although now under much discussion among scholars, was something the New Testament church of James's day never questioned. They thought it would happen. 
And by the way, the second coming of Christ, also called the parousia, you've probably heard that, that's the Greek word for it. It's a Greek word in this text for it. It's such a repeated concept in the New Testament that you cannot avoid it. You can't avoid it. One scholar has noted that in the 260 chapters of the New Testament, there are 318 references to the second coming of Christ. Did you get that? That means about one out of every 30 verses refers to the return of Jesus. You can't read your Bible very long without encountering it. It's also notable that for every prophecy describing Jesus' first coming, there are eight which look forward to his second. There are 1,845, that's 1,845 references to Christ's second coming in the Old Testament. I think God may have wanted us to remember that idea. And yet we rarely talk about it amongst each other. We don't remind each other of it. When's the last time you left a conversation with someone by saying, be encouraged, buddy, Jesus is coming soon? You ever do that? Back in the 70s, people would often say Maranatha. It's an Aramaic expression which comes from Revelation chapter 22 and verse 20. It means the Lord is coming or our Lord come. Come, Lord Jesus. The early church faced a load of persecution. Life for a Christian under Roman rule was not easy. Under those adverse conditions, the believer's morale was lifted by the hope and the promise of Christ's coming. So Maranatha became a common greeting of the oppressed, persecuted believers to each other, which replaced the Jewish greeting of Shalom. For the believers, it was Maranatha. Shouldn't we be encouraging each other with the promise of Christ's return? Every day we should look for him. Every day we should long for him to come. We, of all people, ought to have a Maranatha mindset. The writer of Hebrews certainly caught that mindset when he charged that we should be inciting one another to love and good deeds as we gather and encourage each other as the day draws near. What day is he talking about there in Hebrews 10? What day? The day of Christ's coming. I heard Alistair Begg this week. Let me give you a summary. Talking about Jesus' return. Let's just give you the quick summary here. The four S's, the four S words to describe Jesus' coming as it's painted in the New Testament. Number one, it's a day that is secret. It's a day that is secret. No one knows the day or the hour or the time. Amen? That's Matthew 24. Number two, it will be sudden. It's just another day at the office for people. It's going to come that fast. Another day in the field. The routine of getting up and going to work. People will be having their weddings on that day. They'll be having surgeries on that day. They'll be having root canals, and they will be dropping their kids off at school on that day the way they did on the previous day and the way they're expecting to do it on the following day. Only difference is there won't be a following day. It's going to be as sudden as that. Number two... It's spectacular. It's a spectacular day. 
No one will be in any doubt when Jesus returns. It will not be like his first coming, inconspicuous. It will be very conspicuous. It will be universal and it will be instantaneous. Every eye will see him. And then fourthly, it will bring separation. Matthew chapter 4, uh, 24, verses 40 and 41 says, there'll be some two people, two guys in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. Two people in a bed, one will be taken, one will be left. Now, if I were to go around the room and came, came right down on the floor and looked you in the eye and I called your name and I asked you individually this morning, do you believe that Christ will return today? Yes or no? How would you respond? Honestly, most of us want to say, and we would like to say, we'd say yes. But the truth is, in reality, we'd say no. And that, said one famed Scottish preacher, is the very mindset which will characterize the people when Jesus does return. Matthew 24, 44, Jesus said, for this reason you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. And I'm right there with you. Friends, it's near. James says it's near. It's close. It's at hand. You say, well, it's been over 2,000 years. Well, you know what that is in God years? That's like two days. Right? Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Then down in verse 8, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Seriously, folks, let's not be scoffers. Instead, James says, you too be patient and strengthen your hearts because God, Christ is coming soon. He's coming soon. He's near. He could come today. And that means you can make it through whatever you're suffering through. It also means, as Douglas Moo points out, that we ought to make decisions and choose values based on that realization that he could come today. You know, there are two implications of believing in the imminency, meaning Christ could come at any time. One is moral purity. 1 John 3, 3, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Moral purity. The second thing, now, the second thing, zealous evangelism. Moral purity and zealous evangelism. 
For the love of Christ controls us, Paul writes, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died and died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Moral purity, zealous evangelism. You can tell whether someone believes that the Lord is really coming at any time by looking at the way that they live. Someone living a habitual immoral lifestyle does not obviously think Jesus is coming today. I don't care how many excuses you make, it is not your belief if you're living that way. Someone who never shares the gospel of Christ with their family or their friends or even strangers doesn't believe that Christ will come today. Do we have the passion for Christ in the purity of life that operates under the belief that Christ is coming today? This ought to convict us, convicts me. It also leads us to the sober truth that in light of Christ's nearness, how we treat each other in the face of our afflictions matters. It certainly matters. There's no excuse for bad behavior just because we're under pressure. And so James adds that the power of patience also means a third thing here. It means waiting in silence and restraining our attitudes. Look at verse 9. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. And when I say silence, I'm not referring to restraining from speaking the gospel I'm referring to what James is referring to here, complaining and grumbling against each other. James has already laid out the rules of curbing our tongue in terms of gossip, slander, and teaching, and so on in previous texts that we've already studied. But here he addresses the idea of just plain having an attitude toward each other. The command is that they would stop complaining against each other. And he gives them three clarifying things surrounding that command. He gives them a reminder, a reason, and a reality. He begins by reminding them of who they are. What does it say? Do not complain, brethren. Your family, he says. Then he gives them a reason for the charge. He says, drop the grudge against your Christian brother or sister. Why? Because the reason is simple and straightforward, so that we ourselves may not be judged. That's what it says. And finally, he gives them the stark reality of the scenario. And by the way, take notice, the judge, that's a capital J with a definite article, the judge is standing right at the door. In other words... As the old saying goes, and this will date me, but here comes the judge. (laughs) Jesus is right there at the door. That's what James says. You believe James? Believe the word of God? He's at the door. He's that close. And when he walks through that door, there's no going back. No going back. Shouldn't that dictate the way that we treat each other? This word complaining here is really describing an inward attitude of dissatisfaction rather than an outward expression of complaining. It's it's a word that means to groan inwardly or to sigh. The term elsewhere is used of sighing with grief. Like, Like when we pray to the Holy Spirit, 
with groanings too deep for words. That's what the word is. And this was something that was ongoing with James, James's congregation. Faith on the front lines, folks, can be oppressive, can it? And it's quite natural to turn on each other because of our frustration with others who are hurting us. It's the tisking and the groaning and the rolling of the eyes and the shaking of the head and the act of generally being disgusted with fellow believers and wanting to lash out at them. And the cause of it is likely the pressure that we're all under as we fight the good fight of faith. And but whether or not a person is in the wrong or is doing wrong against us, the frustration that we harbor inside ought to lead us to God, not to complaining. This is difficult, to say the least. And I have struggled deeply with it. I'm just admitting it to you. Thanks. Solidarity, brother. Even this week, I struggled with it. But the Lord pulled me up short through this text, and let me tell you, it hurt me. It hurt me bad. It cost me a couple nights' sleep. But it also stopped me from saying something to someone that I know would have likely caused amazing damage. It stopped my tongue. And the fact that Jesus is at the door, that his judgment is righteous, and that he endured such hostility against himself, yet he did not lash out at his persecutors, gives us a prime example of patience even in the midst of unjust persecution. But James doesn't appeal here to the example of Christ. Rather, he brings it down to our imperfect human level by pointing us to a couple of other examples we might be better able to relate to. He uses the prophets and Job. James's final charge to us is simply to remember that the power of patience means waiting while suffering, Recalling our forerunners. Look at verses 10 and 11. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Let's just stop right there for a minute. Who were the prophets? Well, they were those who spoke the word of God, right? They were not just men and women who predicted the future, but those who proclaimed the truth no matter what, and they suffered for it. They were afflicted and endured harsh treatment with patience, but they were blessed in the end because of it. Think of Jeremiah. 40 years he preached to a nation that wouldn't listen to him, tried to kill him. It's a long ministry when nobody's listening to you. You see, but these these prophets were afflicted. These who spoke the word of God, they were afflicted and they endured harsh treatment with patience, but they were blessed in the end because of it, not in the sense of this world. They didn't have television shows and they didn't have great stadiums of people and bright, teethy smiles proclaiming a prosperity gospel. No, they suffered persecution. But they were blessed with the favor and the inexpressible joy of heaven. Blessed are the perseverers. 
James chapter 1, verse 12, brings us right back to the opening chapter. James says, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. I think James might have been thinking about his own brother's words in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, Jesus said, Blessed are you when people insult you, when they persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Hebrews 13.7 says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Who can forget the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11? Hebrews chapter 11, even verse 32, it says, What more shall I say, for time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets. And what did these guys have to endure? Verse 37, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with a sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And they didn't even ever see what God had promised in the end. As someone rightly said, the blessings come not to people who do great things. The blessings come to people who endure great things. The ones who will receive the greatest glory in the world to come are the ones who endured the greatest suffering in the world that is. It's blessing out of brokenness. And so James says, I got one more example for you. Enter Job. Another example. This one got me, though. And you're probably thinking the same thing. No one, however, would say that Job was exactly patient with his affliction. You read the book of Job, he was a bit self-righteous at times. And he complained bitterly about the way God was treating him. He questioned God. But you know what Job never did? Job never abandoned his faith. Never. As William Barclay noted, Job struggled and questioned and sometimes even defied, but the flame of faith was never extinguished in him. I find it interesting that James doesn't use the word for patience in these last two examples of the prophets and Job. He uses a different word, the word for perseverance and endurance. You see, Satan practically destroyed Job and totally stripped him of the joy of life. Even though he did not understand why God was allowing this to happen, Job endured it to the end. He waited on God. He never cursed God. 42 chapters. For 42 chapters, Job waited in suffering. His wife questioned his sanity. His friends questioned his spirituality. And for 42 chapters, he was oppressed, but Job held fast to his faith's integrity. And the Lord, through his abundant compassion and mercy, blessed Job in the end. And that's what James says. And have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, meaning the end of the purpose of God. The final outcome of Job's endurance was the Lord's blessing upon his latter days of his life even more than his beginning days. 
And this brings out James's final encouragement to us as his people and his congregation. He says, the things we may suffer now in our present state of distress is not the end of the story. The final outcome, as someone said, is that God will transform your situation and mine for good when Christ is revealed in glory. And Paul reiterated that in Romans chapter 8 and verse 18 when he says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us and to us. You know why Paul could say that? Because the Lord, as James reminds us here in the last words of verse 11, because the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. God feels your pain. He feels your pain so deeply and is so full of compassion that James had to make up a word for it. That word there for full of compassion, that phrase full of compassion is a unique word in the New Testament. It's only used here. It's not used anywhere in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's nowhere else in the Bible, and it wasn't even used in classical Greek literature of the day. James had to make this word up, and what it means really is that God, when it comes to kindness, when it comes to sympathy, when it comes to compassion, God is extreme. The compound word that James made up means he's an extremely compassionate God. He's extremely sympathetic. He's extremely kind and pitiful. Yes, good thing. And that is what we can rest in as James closes out this section. Above and beyond literal description. And that's James' final word to us today. The Lord is full of compassion and he's merciful. Therefore, we can have patience. Let me close with a final illustration. It's a true story. It's a man who lived and died in successful warfare against the unbelief of impatience. I found it in a post by John Piper. The man's name was Charles Simeon. He was a pastor in the Church of England and he served at Trinity Church in Cambridge from 1782 to 1836. You know how long that is? 54 years. Served as a pastor for 54 years. Now you say, that's pretty amazing. That's not the amazing part. Simeon had been appointed to this church by the bishop against the will of of his congregation. They opposed him, not because he was a bad preacher, but because he was an evangelical preacher. In other words, he believed the Bible. He called for conversion and holiness and evangelism. Get this. For 12 years, the people refused to let him give the Sunday afternoon sermon. And during that time, they boycotted the Sunday morning service and locked their pews so that no one else could come and sit in them. They had those pews with doors on them that you could lock. He preached to people that sat in the aisles for 12 years. 
How did he last? This is what he wrote. In this state of things, quote, I saw no remedy but faith and patience. Note the linking of those two. The passage of Scripture which subdued and controlled my mind was this, quote, the servant of the Lord must not strive. Note, the weapon in the fight for faith and patience was the word of God. God is the God of patience, and so his servants must be. That's what that verse says. The servant of the Lord must not strive. It was painful indeed, he says, to see the church with the exception of the isles almost forsaken. But I thought that if God would only give a double blessing to the congregation who were attending, they would on the whole do as much good as if the congregation were doubled and the blessing limited to only half the amount. Smart guy. This comforted me many, many times, he says, when without such a reflection, I should have sunk under my burden, unquote. Where did he get the assurance that if he followed the way of patience, there would be a blessing on his work that would make up for frustrations of having all the pews locked? Well, he got it, no doubt, from texts like Isaiah 30, verse 18, which says, blessed are all those who wait for the Lord. It's the meek who inherit the earth. The word conquered unbelief and belief conquered impatience. 54 years later, that's a long time. 54 years later, he was dying. It was October of 1836 and the months had dragged on up to that point as they have for many dying saints. The battle with impatience can be very intense even on your deathbed. On October 21st, those by his bed heard him say these words slowly and with very long pauses in between. Quote, infinite wisdom has arranged the whole with infinite love. And infinite power enables me to rest upon that love. I am in a dear father's hands. All is secure. When I look to him, I see nothing but faithfulness and immutability and truth. And I have the sweetest peace. I cannot have more peace. Unquote. The reason Charles Simeon could die like that is because he had trained himself for 54 years to go to the scripture and take hold of the infinite wisdom, love, and power of God and to use them to conquer the unbelief of impatience. Brothers and sisters, waiting on God truly is the hardest work of our faith. But because of his extreme love and kindness and compassion and mercy for us, we can rest on the truth that God has no process without good as his purpose. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your faithfulness in the wake of our unfaithfulness. Lord, I confess my impatience at times. And I ask your forgiveness. I confess the impatience of our own congregation, our body as a whole. We ask your forgiveness.
Help us, Lord God, to learn and to know how to wait on you, no matter how long it takes. Whether attendance skyrockets or attendance plummets, whether people get saved or people do not, let us be faithful in serving you until the day that you call us home to be with you. And in that day, Lord God, may we not be ashamed. May we hear the gentle and encouraging words of Jesus that we've done it well. Give us patience, Lord. I know it's a bold prayer. But because of James's letter, we know that's what you want from us. So along with the trials, you'll give us the way of escape that we might be able to endure it. For I ask it in the holy and precious and patient name of Jesus the Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.